0: First Church. How are you all this morning? Good. Did everybody survive? It was like Tuesday morning, excuse me, as I clear my throat to tell this, that we woke up and I walked out and there was like a quarter inch of pollen uh, on top of the vehicle. Uh, So I'm glad to see everybody is at least uh, surviving that to a a certain degree. Uh, If you're here visiting with us this morning for the first time, if you're new here, my name is Ben James. I am the lead pastor here at First Church. Uh, We are going back into our Exodus study. We've taken the month of April. We kind of stepped away from it. Uh, But we had spent eight weeks working through the book of Exodus up until this point, and we had gotten through six chapters. So I'm going to kind of do a few few moments here, take just a a little bit of time, and kind of catch us up as to what's been going on up until this point, and then we're going to uh, get into our passage for today. What we saw at the beginning of the book of Exodus is that uh, Egypt, uh, Pharaoh, this new king had arisen, and he didn't know Joseph, uh, which meant that there was an entire nation that was living within the kingdom of Egypt. It was the, the Israelite nation, the Hebrew people, and they were living there and they were being taken care of. They had assimilated themselves into the culture of the time, and they were living and living well within the land of Egypt. But with this new Pharaoh, with this new king who didn't know Joseph and who was worried about this entire nation being more numerous than the Egyptians, basically, he began to worry about what if. Uh, you know, what if this happens? What if they decide to come against us? They're more numerous than what we are, so we need to do something to take care of that. At that point, we begin to see Uh, this genocide, basically, of the Israelite people. Uh, The the young male children in particular that were born, they were ordered to be uh, exterminated and taken care of, and we saw one young man in particular named Moses who was saved from this. Uh, He was born, and then his mother placed him into a basket, uh, put him into the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter was the one who recovered him from there, and as God works things so sovereignly sometimes, it was actually Moses' mother who was able to take, him, take care of him and raise him until he was weaned. And then he went into Pharaoh's house and was raised as an Egyptian. Now, sometime a few decades into his life, uh, Moses decides that he needs to take justice into his own hands and he takes the life of an Egyptian Taskmaster, basically, as the nation of Israel and the Hebrew people had uh, been bound into slavery at this point. And inevitably, what happens is Moses has to flee out of fear for his own life. He flees into a land called Midian. And there he marries, he has a family, he takes care of his father in law's sheep for several decades, and is just kind of living life there. At one point, he has an encounter with God via a burning bush. Uh, And God spoke to him uh, through this discourse and told him that, hey, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Egyptian bondage. The Hebrew, the Israelite people, I'm going to deliver them out of their bondage, and I'm going to use you. And we see in this interchange here that uh, God reveals himself to Moses in a way that God had never revealed himself to anyone before, no matter. Uh, what level of relationship or how uh, big of a character that we think that the person was in the Bible, God begins to reveal himself in a different way. So Moses and, and Aaron go and they confront Pharaoh. And it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well at all. Actually, they walk out. Uh, then the people of Israel start blaming them. You know like you, you know because their bondage their darkness, we talked about just how bad the 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 situation was for the the Israelites in egypt and this the result of this first confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh was that it actually their their situation got worse, got darker got got even uh, got got even more intense for them so The people start blaming Moses. Moses turns around and starts blaming God, right? And that's kind of where we left off. We left off at the end of chapter 6 where really we looked at the grace of God in Moses' life that he didn't just strike Moses dead. Because if there's ever really a cause that I think would be justifiable for us to look at an Old Testament God's wrath type moment it would have been when Moses is trying to deflect blame and just say, I told you this was going to happen, God, this is your fault. Uh, which, you know, none of us would ever, ever question God about anything in our lives. So I'm glad we've got like the example of Moses, right? Uh, because that at least gives us a, a, a grid of what, what's coming. But today we're going to begin in chapter 7. Now we're, we're going to start reading here in just a little bit. Um, and hey, we're coming out strong, coming back into this study of Exodus. We're going to be spending three weeks in the plague. And right, Now hold your applause. Hold your applause. We're going to be looking at the ten plagues of, of Egypt as we spend three and we're going to take a really balanced look at them. And if you know me and you know I'm not a person of great balance to begin with. So here's how it's going to play out. We're going to primarily look at plague number one today. Then we're going to look at plagues Two through nine, next Sunday. And then the third week, we're going to look at plague number 10, right? It's all about balance. It makes sense. But we're going to look, uh, I've titled this message today, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And, and the reason that I want, to, I want to title what we've titled it and where we're going to begin, because I'm actually going to read a passage of Scripture that we've already covered here in just a second. But I kind of want to frame it that... The ten plagues of Egypt are a response, are God's response to this question. So Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, I've got it up here on the screen, says this. Now we've already covered this, I understand this, but let's go back. But Pharaoh said, this is in the initial confrontation between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So all that we're getting ready to study over these next three weeks is God going, okay, I'm going to answer your question. I'm I'm going to answer this. Who is the Lord? And I kind of want to submit it to you this way this morning, that I think that we all ask this same question sometimes in our lives. I think that sometimes we have the mentality of Pharaoh in our lives, of who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You see, the issue here is not that they're introducing the concept of another god. Egypt and Pharaoh had zero problems with there being multiple gods. They were a polytheistic culture, which means that they had many gods. We're monotheistic as Christians. We believe in one god. Yahweh, we, we have one God. They were polytheistic which meant that they had many. So I don't think that Pharaoh's issue here was with the fact that there was another God being introduced on the scene. I think that Pharaoh's main issue was the fact that there was a God that was being introduced and he was being expected to listen to him. To obey this God. So I began to look a little bit this week as to how we would kind of respond to that. And you know, here in America, in in the American culture, did you know that it is just shy of 4% of our population that claim atheism? It's just 4%. I mean, I, I think that that's probably a loud minority, but really... There's only 4% of our population that claims that they don't believe in a God, a higher power. But when we look at the shape of our nation and the shape of our lives sometimes, I don't think that we could detach ourselves completely from this concept. You see, I don't think that Pharaoh had a problem at all with there being an additional God. I think that the issue was, is like, you're telling me that there's a God that I need to listen to. And isn't that kind of our human nature? You know, because I believe that we think there's this mindset that we are growing and we are getting better as, as mankind. That as time goes on, that we are adapting and we, we are evolving into this better version of mankind. But when you look at it, I don't think we are. I think we have greater technology. I think that we have greater means of, uh, you know, maybe being a little bit more efficient. And I mean, you know, it's like, listen, I've got a cup of water up here just in case my throat starts cr- scratching on me a little bit. Guess what? This is filtered water. Don't give me none of that tap stuff. Huh, what, what am I, a barbarian? I mean, listen, if it's coming out of the tap, then you better find some volcanic ash and you better filter that through that before it goes in that cup, Right? Like, so we have all of this stuff. You know, we got these mattresses that for some reason that we thought it was a great idea. Like, you know, oh, NASA's got this foam that just you lay down on and it, it, it like conforms to your shape. It's like, we need to be sleeping on that. So, you know, in the middle of the night, you're like, okay, I can't move here. But you know what? I mean, there's like these mattress toppers. I, I'm sorry, Carrick, I'm not trying to dissuade any business. Go to Dyer's, get you a new mattress. It's great. All right, I promise. But You know, we've got all this new technology and all these things that's making our life better and more efficient and faster and simpler. And yet, we have more anxiety than we've ever dealt with in the history of mankind before. We're more anxious than ever. We're more sleepless than ever. We're we're more worried. And we have greater weights. And what these things that are supposed to be helping us actually kind of compound and layer upon layer. So there's really not anything that apart from the Lord's going to be introduced to us that's going to make our lives so much better. I, I went back and I, um, have any of you ever felt like down a YouTube rabbit hole? Like, you know, I go to examine thoughts on the transubstantiation thoughts in communion and I wind up watching cats cats boxing each other. You know, it's like, I don't know how I get there. It just, It happens. But I ran upon like a a Coke ad, you know, Coca-Cola ad, like 2015, 2014, something like that. And the slogan was Coke is life. I don't know if anybody remembers that or not, but they were saying that Coke is life. You want to know why? Because we now have pure sugar again in our Coca-Cola. It's not that high fructose corn syrup stuff. No, no, this is the good stuff. This is really what you need. And the ad had like all of these, like, well, just hot people. Okay? I mean, they were all just like hot and they were drinking like two liters of Coke and they were eating whatever and they were running along the sand. It was like, listen, you're not going to be hot and be able to drink Coke. I've tried. And I've come to the conclusion, I can't even be hot if I don't drink Coke. <laughs> but the thing about it is, is like, you know, it's like, listen, we've got 96 grams of sugar in there. Sure you can drink that. Don't worry, as long as it's not the high fructose corn syrup. You know, but we're always looking at these things and the matter the matter of fact is is when we begin to look at anything or anyone apart from Jesus to make things better, to fulfill our lives, to help us, then it's going to be looking in vain. Because everything that I've turned to in my life, that I've tried to find joy and contentment and peace in, other than Jesus, has fallen woefully short. Now, there, be, there may be moments And I I think I can be safe in quoting scripture here that says that there is pleasure in sin for a season, but the end thereof is death. So let's look at this because we are so, I I think that we have this mentality that who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Right, because I think we're good. Man, I'm good with God. Oh, he wants me to not do what I want? Wait a minute. I don't know if I like that guy or not. Oh, yeah, I'm all about God. Whoa, wait a minute. You're telling me that I can't do this? Oh, no, I don't know if I like that or not. No. See, we struggle with the same thing. We can look at Pharaoh and go, this dude should have known better, right? Pharaoh should have known better. And I just wonder how, number one, if the Lord tarries, I wonder if there's ever going to be the history of first church that's written under under this time, and they're going to look at me and go, that dude should have known better have known better. And I think that we're all there. So let's take a, 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 let's take a look at the first plague here. And I'm going to give you four views. Uh, I'm not going to go deeply into these, but I'm going to give you four views on the plague. Now you can research this and you'll find that there are far more views on the plagues than these. But these are the four main ones that I've found. The first view is they are natural. Uh, they're, they're kind of a natural sequencing of events that actually portray a supernatural God. Like the first one happened out of a natural situation, then the second one happened out of that one in progression and progression and progression, but these things cannot progress unless there is some type of intelligent designer, intelligent creation, and a creator that's falling behind this. So that's the first view. The second view is kind of a natural process that denies any type of supernatural, that denies any type of deity or any type of intelligence going behind these things. So they're just saying that this is just a natural process, and because this is a natural process that science can explain and prove, then that proves that there is no God, and that there is no supernatural causation behind this. I've got a little bit of a problem with both of these. Um, Number one, water turning to blood. I don't know where that begins as natural. And I know that there's some algae that low tide or the the low level waters of the Nile can produce an algae that can give it a red tint. I've, I've read all of that. But I think that if you're looking at this natural progression theory, whether you believe that it proves a supernatural aspect or if it disproves it, then I think that you're going to be able to at least build a case up through the first six plagues. But then there's a big leap that you have to make in between plague six and plague seven, and then there's an even bigger leap that you have to make between plague nine and plague ten. Now, if you're interested in knowing all these, we've got, some, we've got a page, uh, a whole section developed that's dedicated to this study on our website, fccgrason.com. Uh, And if you want to go directly there, you can go with forward slash Exodus, or it's right there on the main menu. And we have a plagues page on there that you can look and you can see all ten plagues, and there's a lot of information, historical information on these plagues. So those are the first two. The third one is a polemic view. Now, the polemic view means that God, our God Yahweh, is responding to, to and disproving or proving his uh, sovereignty and his power and his might over the many gods and goddesses of Egypt. So, with each of the plagues, you can see, and this is on that, that page as well, it corresponds to an Egyptian god or goddess. So, it's like God flexing on their gods and goddesses, our Yahweh flexing on them and saying that, okay, well, if they're so powerful, then I'm just going to prove that they're not. So there's a polemic view. And the fourth one is a decreation view. And this decreation is basically the belief that God is taking and showing his power and his sovereignty by saying that I created all of these things, I can decreate them too. I can, go, I can make them go in reverse. So I caused these things to bring you life or I caused these things to happen and fall into place and create them just like this so that you could have the life that you're having. But guess what? I'm God. I'm all-powerful, and I can also undo that, and I can have it working in reverse. So those are the four views. Me, personally, I can really get on board with two of these. And it it doesn't matter, in this study going forward, what I can get on board with, what I can't to a certain degree. But the last two, the polemic approach and the decreation approach, I think we see elements of both of these in these plagues. So I wanted to throw out those four main views before we move into the actual plagues themselves. So let's look at these plagues. And I want to introduce you to an Egyptian god named Happy. Happy. Good looking, isn't he? Happy is the Egyptian god in charge of the Nile annually flooding. Now, we covered this before. And no, the irony of the name is not lost on me. Okay, that the God that brings fertility to the Nile, that the God that brings his, his basic overall purpose is to bring a fullness of life to the people of Egypt and to fulfill their dreams and their wants and their desires. The irony of his name being happy is not lost on me. However, I don't think that we can really stretch that out to go, well, that's where we get our English word, happy, from. And, you know, I said, that's not the case. But happy was responsible for being the source of fullness of life for the Egyptian people would bring the flooding of the Nile. We covered this before, that it would bring so many feet of black soil that would make it fertile, that they could grow their crops, that they would sustain life, and everything that they would want, everything that they would desire at this time was because of this Nile flooding. So with that, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 7, and let's read. We're going to read passage, uh, Scripture 14 through 17. Uh, the, The first 13 verses I encourage you to go back and read it. It's God talking about the hardening of uh, Pharaoh's heart. Uh, But really for this message, we're going to be focusing in on this passage. 14 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not, even, and he did not take even this to heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now, as we look at this, we see this account where God instructs them to go and to extend the staff and make the proclamation and that the Nile would turn to blood. Now, as we move through these, I want you to understand that some of the plagues affected everyone. Some of the plagues just affected the Egyptians. But what I want us to concentrate on is how Pharaoh is viewing what God is doing in his life. Because if you look, it says that all sources of water were turned to blood. Not just the Nile, but the canals, everything that flowed even down to the cups and into the basins, everything turned to blood. So the picture is this. Pharaoh is having a hard time because he is considered like to be a god himself. And as long as other gods are on his level or below him, he is perfectly fine. There's no issues whatsoever, as long as what Pharaoh wants, his control, his power, his sovereignty over his own life, as long as that isn't challenged, he's good. You see, he was even good with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelite nation, still being their God while they were living there until his obedience was expected to this God until it became him that was responding to the king's edict and the king's command and as this water began to turn to blood it says that his magicians through their secret arts for even a moment they were able to replicate it but it never said that what they were doing as they were digging you know it says there at the end that they dug out to the side of the nile to try to get water it never articulates that that worked So we've got these magicians and and God who are going kind of head to head and even though that they're doing it, they can't undo it. It says that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Now there's going to be a lot of things that flow after this. There's going to be a lot of plagues that come after this. And I'm going to have to be real careful these next three weeks in in the way that i present this because what we need to understand is that when we have idols in our own lives the things that we exalt above god the things that we serve rather than serving god it is god's mercy when he reveals those to us not his punishment it's god's mercy whenever your idols in your life are revealed, not his punishment. Just, just let me throw this out there. A spouse makes a horrible God. For those of you who may be thinking that, oh, my life is going to fall into place, everything's going to come together whenever I get that spouse, that certain person... And then, when we get that certain person, oh, if they're only happy, if they're only, uh, you know, if, if everything's going well for us, you know, spouses make horrible gods. Finances make horrible gods. Because there's no amount of money in the world that's going to make things right in your life. Material things. Make horrible gods. Your kids make horrible gods. And no, don't worry, most of them will grow out of being horrible little people. Because some of you may even have questions as to now. <laughs> like, listen, I had this cute kid at one point. Now it's a demon. Please tell me they grow up. They do. They do. All of these things. I got kids looking through. Do you think I'm a demon? (laughs) No. All of these things make horrible gods. They make horrible masters. You see, because so much of us in the American dream especially, we think that we find the right person. We get a little coin in our pocket. We have a nice car and nice house with a two-car garage to put that in. And then if we've got the relationships we need, if we've got the white picket fence, if we've got the family, if we've got the job that we work at, then all of these things are fine. Then that's when I'll be happy. See, that's what the Egyptians thought too, that their God of fullness brought them. And then Yahweh showed up on the scene and said, without me, there is no fullness of life. Without me. I, I, you know, I think that sometimes we, we kind of laugh and talk about the book of Ecclesiastes sometimes, you know, because Proverbs is like, you know, the, the person that finds this finds a good thing. You should manage this, and you should manage that. And then the same person who wrote that goes back into the book of Ecclesiastes and goes, everything under the sun is meaningless. All of this, there's nothing that makes sense. But I think that an ecclesiastical view of life can sometimes be beneficial to us when we think that anything under heaven is meaningless. There's only one thing that truly brings complete meaning and fullness to our life, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? John 10, 10, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life to the full. May I submit to you, listen, you can have moments of happiness. You can work hard and get a nice car. You can have a good career, buy a nice house. You can have a bunch of kids, and you can be happy in moments with a spouse and this life that you're building. But guess what? You're not going to live a full life apart from Jesus Christ. He agrees. Blessings are pouring down. I have come to give you life and life to the full. So really quickly this morning, I, wanna, I think that there's something that this text and these plagues will beg us to confront over and over and over again as we move through these next few weeks, is I think that there has to be a consistent theme of repentance and belief in our lives. And I'm talking about on the daily. I'm not talking about repenting once and believing once and then we're going to be golden. I don't know about you, but my life is a challenge. I find that I am trying to place things above God each and every day in my life. And I have to make sure that I am repenting of those things and that I am constantly believing in those things. So three things really quickly of how do we live daily in repentance and belief? Well, the first one is that we recognize that God is my king. God is the king that's on the throne of my life, not me. And that sounds really good, but that's really difficult sometimes, isn't it? Because the one who's on the throne is the one who makes the decisions. And when we don't like what the one on the throne, the decisions that they're making for us, we tend to want to move that person Off the throne and take our rightful place on the I'm the master of my destiny yeah how's that working out for you but we need to repent and believe and make sure that we are recognizing that God is my king the second thing is is that we recognize that the church is my family God has surrounded us with brothers and sisters in Christ you were never meant to do this thing alone All I need is Jesus, brother. Well, that sounds great written out, but you know what? That's not biblical. It's not biblical. Yes, we need Jesus, no doubt about it, but I need you as well. I need you. And you know what? There are people in my family that I don't agree with, there are people in my family who don't agree with me. Can you imagine such a thing? I tell them all the time, I'm like, listen, you can disagree with me all you want to. You've got the freedom to be wrong. But just because they disagree with me, I don't, I'm like, you're no longer my family. No, we work through things, we love each other, we stick to it. And I'm not going to tell you the story, but I, here recently, I've had, I've had meals with, with several people from our local community who are at other, at other churches and they're expressing their interest to leave there and come to First Church. And my, the first words out of my mouth is, you need to stay where you're at because that church is your family. Now, uh, God works things. God changes seasons. There's no doubt about that. But just because we get upset or we disagree with something doesn't mean that we leave our family. Somebody say Amen. amen. Thank you. Okay, soapbox done. All right, the third thing that we repent and believe is that we recognize that God's mission is my purpose. God's mission is my purpose. And again, I'm going to echo what I said a couple weeks ago. God did not send his son so you could have a better life. Jesus did not come so you could have a better life. He came to save your soul. He came to save your soul. Now, don't get me wrong. Our life gets indescribably better whenever we have Jesus save our soul. But his reason for coming was not to give us a better life. He came to save your soul, and he tells us, my mission over your life and your purpose is that you go and you tell others the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the praise team, if they would, to come back up for us this morning. As I, as I close this out this morning, as we get ready to offer an invitation time, I think that really, you know, I mean, those are application points right there, but I think the one application point and the one question that I would leave with you today is the same question we started with, who is the Lord?